We are continuing the uh, Sermon on the Mount. If you have your copy of God's Word, please open to Matthew chapter 5. We are going to look at verses 27 through 32. As we get started, I want to remind you of what we talked about last week. Jesus is here before the people of God, before the Jewish people, and he is appearing before them as the Messiah, as the King, as the Spirit-anointed one who is coming. And you remember we looked at Isaiah 61 where uh, it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to release the captives and restore sight to the blind and so on. And Jesus said, I am fulfilling that before you. I am the one that was coming. And at the end of that section, he says, this Messiah who would come would plant oaks of righteousness. And that's us. For 2,000 years, the Messiah has been planting these trees that started off as little seeds and grow into big trees of righteousness. And he says to reveal or display the splendor of the Lord. As you and I pursue righteousness, we are putting on display for the whole world God's glory. It matters. And, and God's love through Jesus Christ on the cross demands everything from us so that we put on this proper display. So Jesus is walking through these hard things so far in the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, as Dwight took us through this summer. Blessed are the peacemakers, the poor in spirit, the pure in heart, those who suffer persecution. Well, as we've heard this week and as Rich just prayed, think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and other places, in no way is this intended to be lighthearted, but Jesus' command to them would be rejoice and be glad that the Lord has counted you worthy to suffer. And if they hold fast to the end, their reward will be great. We don't wish that on anybody, but pray for them as we just did. Continue to pray for them that they will stand firm and receive the reward of their Father in heaven who's watching. Well, today we have another hard passage, and, and before we get into it, I, I want to offer a couple of statements by way of introduction. Number one, this section today is dealing with some very practical, hard things. We're going to look at Jesus' teaching on adultery, not only bodily adultery, but heart adultery, and his teaching on divorce and remarriage. And as I look around this room... I don't know all your stories, but I know some of your stories, and I know there are some who are watching online and some who will watch this later, and the truth of the matter is, we are in that category that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. And in that list, he includes adulterers, fornicators, and he says, praise the Lord, such were some of you. That's not who we are anymore. We've been justified. We've been declared righteous in the forgiveness of Christ. But there's still something very difficult, even looking back and say, I rejoice in God's goodness and his guidance. There's something difficult when it comes to a passage like this to say, yeah, I fit that category. And I want you to hear on the front end, though we can't shy away from what Jesus says, if you are in Christ, if you have received his forgiveness, such were some of you. And nobody in this room is going to 
look on you with shame. God doesn't look on you with shame. He says, I forgive you. Just like I forgive, forgive the person sitting next to you who's guilty of other sins. We're all here because we are guilty of sins. And in God's grace, he's forgiven us. So please don't let the enemy take this text and crush you if you've received the forgiveness of Christ. At the same time, we can't go the other way and pretend like Jesus didn't say what he said. Our attitude toward these things has to fit with what Jesus commands, regardless of our experience or what the world is telling us. So you see the two poles I want us to avoid? The enemy is the one who wants to shame us if we've truly been forgiven. He also wants us to say, you know, don't get too worked up about these things. No, this is serious business. And so we need to let Jesus tell us what is right and true as we consider it. So we begin in verse 27. You have heard it was said. Remember, he's talking about the righteousness of the Pharisees, the righteousness of the uh, former Jewish teachers. And Jesus said, you have to be more righteous than them if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And these were the paragons of virtue. He's saying this is what they taught, and then he's going to tell us what he teaches. What you have heard is, you shall not commit adultery. Now, in that case, they're not destroying anything. That comes right out of the Ten Commandments. God said it, thou shalt not commit adultery. But here's how the rabbis handled this. So long as your body stayed within the bounds of how God commands us, then you're free from, from sin here. As long as you kept your body pure, you're righteous. That's really all that matters. And they even took it a step further, and they treated adultery not so much as a sexual sin, but as thievery, stealing another man's wife. So that's the, that's the model the Pharisees put out there. You've heard it said, Jesus said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, remember that's emphatic here, I, the embodiment of righteousness, the one that the law prophesied of, the one who is the fulfillment of everything in the law and the prophets, the one who is telling us what God requires of man. This is what I say to you, says Jesus, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This lust, it's a powerful word. This is not a casual glance. This is not typical attraction between men and women. This is, this is not the, the person says, oh, I think that person's rather cute, and then moves on. That's not what we're talking about here. This is an intense desire. This word in its root uh, used to be used way back prior to Christ, was used of when you set water to boil, and then it finally bubbles up. That's... That's the kind of thing. Every morning, my pattern is when I wake up, I go downstairs and I hit the button to grind the coffee beans. Then I have this pot that sits on a, on a little fa uh, uh, stand and I take it over and I fill it with water and I put it on there, I flip the switch, and then I just stare at it. And it's got this blue light that shines underneath and I just stare at it and I'm reminded every morning, a washed pot never boils, right? I stare at it, waiting for the nectar of Holy Spirit to 
to, to be preparing. And, and finally, after some time, the water bubbles up, and it bubbles up big time. And, and you know, there's about halfway, about halfway up on the picture, there's a, a mark that says, do not fill beyond this. Well, the first time I got this thing, I thought, no, I need more than that. So I filled it up to the top, and guess what happened? all over the place, and if I had been close enough, it would, have bo- it would have boiled my skin. It would have burned me. I'd be, oh, that's why. Because when it boils, full boil, it spills out over the top. That's the word that is the root of this word, epithemia, way back pre-Jesus days of water boiling. It takes a while, but once it gets going, it gets big and boils over. This is an intense desire. It later became the word for the motivating spirits and passions of people. And by Jesus' day, it is used to describe an intense desire for something. It's not always evil desire, but it often is, and here it clearly is. So think about what Jesus is saying. You go to synagogue on Saturday, Mr. Jew, and you appear there, and there's your buddy's wife over there, and you not only look at her and think, oh, she's an attractive woman. That maybe had started, that was flipping the switch to get the, the simmer going. But by the time you get to synagogue, it has become this full-on boil of passion for her. And you're thinking about her. And you're thinking about being with her and all the things you would like to do. And you sit in synagogue on Saturday, and your rabbi gets up there and says, hey, The Lord says, do not commit adultery. So long as you keep your body pure, you're good. And you, Mr. Jew, are sitting there pondering your friend's wife and hearing in your ears, you're righteous before God because you've kept your body pure. Even though you're listening with one ear what the rabbi is saying, but with your head and your mind, you keep thinking about your buddy's wife and it is boiling over. Jesus says, if you're looking at someone that way, you've already committed adultery in your heart. That was the switch. You see the difference? We often think Jesus is equating lust and adultery. That's not quite what he's doing. He's saying, if you are looking on her with intense desire, you committed adultery a long time ago in your heart. And because you made that decision... Now it's boiling over. And you think you're righteous because Mr. Rabbi is telling you you're good as long as you keep your body to yourself. Jesus says, no, you're not righteous. You broke that commandment way back here. And now it is intensifying and intensifying. Different standard. Now, If the rabbis were serious about the law of God, they would have realized it's sort of already even covered there. Remember the 10th commandment? What's the 10th commandment? Say it louder, I can't hear you. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Thank you. Somebody knows their Bible. Now, that's not quite the same thing as desire. Uh, the sexual desire, but there is a similarity there. And Jesus is bringing this all together and saying, I, the one who stand before you as the fulfillment of righteousness, am telling you what goes on in the heart matters to God. 
And then he says, this is what I want you to do about it. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So as I look around the room here this morning, I see lots of bodies intact. I see lots of people with both eyes in their head. I see lots of right hands. So my obvious conclusion from that is what? Nobody here is guilty of this. No lusters in this room. Because if you're going to follow the command of Jesus, how many of us would have eyes left in our head? We hope, don't we? We hope and we pray Jesus is using hyperbole. And he is. He does this all throughout the sermon. Later on, he's going to say, let, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You realize that's impossible. He's going to talk about logs sticking out of your eye and removing that before you can look at a speck in someone else. You, you don't actually have a log in your eye. That's, that's a metaphor. We hope he's using hyperbole and metaphorical language here as well. But what's the point? Are you willing to take the measures necessary to keep yourself from disobeying the Lord's command in this area? Because, I mean, think about it. If you pluck out your right eye, which was the, the, the strong eye, the dominant eye in that, in that culture, and it, for most of us it is now. If you pluck out your right eye, does that mean you're not going to lust anymore? Does your right eye ever see things your left eye doesn't see? As long as you have the other eye, you're still there. And what if you take out both eyes? Does that mean you're done with this? No, you're perfectly capable of disobeying this command with both eyes plucked out, right? That's not the point. The point is, what are you willing to do? How serious are we to avoid letting this passion develop in our hearts? Are you willing to change jobs? Because there's somebody in the office that you just cannot stop thinking about? Are you willing to get off social media because there's this relationship that's cultivating and you find yourself burning passion for somebody? Maybe not go to the coffee shop, not drive in a car with someone of the opposite sex? How far are we willing to go to say, I must protect my heart? I want to be an oak of righteousness. I want to please my Lord Jesus. I'm seeking first his kingdom, and I'll do whatever it takes, plucking out the right eye, cutting off the right arm, right hand, doing whatever it needs to be done so that I can remain pure. The stakes are high. He, you know, Jesus mentions hell twice as often as he mentions heaven. The stakes are high. Again, this is on the list in 1 Corinthians 6. Those who practice these things, including adultery, 
Paul says, are not in the kingdom of God, or they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. you you're not them anymore if you're in the kingdom. The stakes are high. This is hard in our day because you've got the world saying, eh, adultery is just sort of assumed. And even in the church, it's not that big a deal in certain sectors. But it's a big deal to Jesus. If we're going to pursue the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees so we can be in the kingdom and live as those oaks of righteousness, we say, I will do whatever it takes to avoid burning in my heart for someone that I'm not married to. Because I don't want to bring shame and reproach on my Lord. I don't want to destroy this marriage. I don't want to be in danger of the fires of Gehenna. In the original language, the next but I say flows straight from it. They're, they're related to one another. It was said, so it's another thing that was taught. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is hard. This is going to make a lot of us uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Let's make sure we're consistent with the scripture. We're not going to cover everything there is to cover on this topic. This is not the only passage in the Bible that talks about these things. So this is not a whole theology of divorce and remarriage. But we have to at least be clear on what Jesus says here and make sure that we are conforming to it. So he quotes this, uh, what they've been taught. He says, you've heard it said, if you're going to divorce someone, send them away with a certificate of divorce. That's not precisely what the Old Testament says. That's what the rabbis were teaching. They're saying, look, you can't just throw her out of the house. Make sure you write it down. Then you can throw her out of the house. But, but put it on paper so she can take this with her and then it's official. And the rabbis began teaching this. Really, they, they developed what we would call today a no-fault divorce situation. You can pretty much divorce your wife or whatever you want to, just write it down, send her away the certificate, and it's all good. This comes back in chapter 19 when the Pharisees try to trap Jesus, and they ask him about it. Is it okay to get divorced for any reason at all whatsoever? Because there were divisions among the rabbis, and some were very, very what we would call liberal. Yep, any, any divorce for anything is fine. Others, no, 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 it's very, very conservative, very restrictive. And they were trying to force Jesus to pick a side. And, of course, he outwitted them all with his response. But this statement is not what the Old Testament said. So the, the rabbis, the Pharisees, were twisting it. It's a quote from De Deuteronomy 24. Let's put it up. Yeah. 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. See that? It's not just he's no longer interested. That's the favorite part. No, he's found an indecency in her. This is a hard word in the Hebrew. Nobody seems to know exactly what it means, the indecency. This construction is only used one other place. It's in the previous chapter in, in Deuteronomy 23. 
And it's in a place where God says, when you set up camp, make sure you have a shovel. And when, it, when you have to uh, go to the restroom, go outside the camp and, and take your shovel with you so you can cover up the excrement so that God does not look on anything indecent. It would be unholy to have the bathroom in the camp, so to speak. That's the only place in Hebrew that this particular expression is found. And you think, well, that doesn't fit this context very well. The word indecency itself is used all over the place in the Old Testament for uh, sexual, uh, sexual relationships. When he talks about you can't have relationships with this person, like your aunt or your sister or your stepdaughter, because that would uncover your father's nakedness or your brother's nakedness and that kind of thing. It's all this word. So it seems to have something to do with inappropriate sexual relations. But it can't be adultery. You have your thinking caps on? He can't be saying when a man takes his wife and it happens, he finds no favor, in his, she finds no favor in his eyes because she committed adultery, send her away with a divorce. You know why that can't be the case? Because the law demanded her execution if she committed adultery. So it appears to be some kind of sexual sin short of intercourse. At least that's the best that I can come up with. So you find this indecency, and the rabbis, by the way, took that to say, if she burns the toast, kick her out. If she doesn't make the bed just right, write her a certificate and away she can go. That's how they distorted it. But Moses here says, she finds an indecency, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of this house. Next verse. She leaves his house and goes on and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin in the land which the Lord your God gives as your inheritance. You see, he's not really saying, if you don't like her anymore, feel free to send her out with a certificate. What he's saying is if you send her out and she marries somebody else, you lost your chance with her. Think it through. You can't get her back if she divorces him. You see how the rabbis twisted that a little bit? It's not simply just make sure you give her the paperwork. No, this is intended to be a slow process and intentional and make sure you know what you're doing because if you do, you're done with her. You can't take her back. So the Pharisees come and ask him this question in chapter 19 of Matthew, is it okay to get divorced for any reason at all? And Jesus says, no. And he appeals back to creation. God made man and woman, brought them together, and said they are now one flesh. Let no man or woman separate what God has joined together covenant language. God brings a couple of us together in a covenant. You don't have the right to break that covenant. Well, then the, the Jews say, oh yeah? Well, then why did Moses give them a certificate of divorce? Quoting Matthew or Deuteronomy 24. See, it's in the law. Remember Jesus' words? They're hard. Because you have hard hearts. Yes, Moses did give this permission for divorce because you are hard-hearted. If you weren't hard-hearted, you wouldn't be seeking for an opportunity for divorce. 
but in the beginning it was not so. That's heavy. That's hard. So here Jesus says, you've been taught wrongly. It's not okay just to send her away with a certificate of divorce. And then he says, a man who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. Now, the assumption there is, in that day, a woman needed to be married to, to have subsistence. So the expectation is she would leave him and go get married to somebody else. And since that original marriage in God's eyes was not se severed, she's still married to the one who sent her away, and now she marries somebody else. She's committing adultery with the first husband because in God's eyes, that marriage is still intact. Or a man comes along and he finds a woman who's been divorced and he marries her. The original relationship is still intact. And so now he marries this divorced woman and he's committing adultery with her because she's still married to somebody else. Now he does give the one exception clause. Sexual sin breaks the marriage covenant. We don't have time this morning to get into all of that. He doesn't use the word adultery here. He uses the word porneia. It is the word from which we get pornography, but that's not really what he's talking about. That's another discussion for another time. This seems to be a broader sexual term that includes adultery, but also other indecencies. It seems to me like it's similar to what Moses meant in Deuteronomy 24. And fleshing that out and trying to figure out what does that all entail, it's more than we have time for, and it's, it's, a, it's a complicated, difficult question. But for now, I want to set aside the exception clause and make sure we understand the significance of what Jesus is saying. You remove that exception clause, Jesus is saying, if you send a woman away in divorce or you marry a divorced woman, there's adultery involved. Let me ask you this question. Someone comes to you and says, I'm really struggling with my, my husband. I'm choosing a wife here. Did you know that 80% of divorces in America are initiated by women? 80%. But this, is, this would be true of men, too. I've got two daughters. This weighs on me. Imagine them getting married. And then somewhere down the line, one of them comes to me and says, I just can't do this anymore. Why not? Because he's this, he's not this, and he's like this, and on and on down the list of, of struggles and complaints. As a dad, hearing that, that's going to tug on my heart. I want my daughters to be happy. I want their marriage to be everything God designed marriage to be. I want future Mr. Son-in-law to treat my daughters well. And then if I find out they are not treating my daughters well, I'm going to be tempted to sin against my son-in-law because I'm entrusting my daughter to you. Take care of her. Love her well. And I, I can just imagine the emotional tug on me as a dad. Some of you have been here. For me, it's hypothetical at the moment, but some of you have been here. You want to go shake the dude, and part of you wants to say, yeah, leave the creep. 
what does King Jesus say? Did he commit adultery against you? No. He's just not cherishing you the way I wish. He doesn't say all the things I like. He says things I don't like. He's not pleasing me. What's my response according to King Jesus? What counsel, what advice should I give? What advice should you give? Did he commit adultery? At least in this passage, that is the exception. If we're going to submit to King Jesus here, we say, you have to stay faithful to him. Stay married to him. I don't want to stand before the Lord Jesus someday and give an account for telling someone, yeah, go ahead and divorce the creep. If I don't have explicit biblical warrant for that. Do you want to do that? Marriage is designed to be a wonderful picture of Christ in the church. And a good marriage is. And in a good marriage, it's wonderful. I told you last week, Chris and I just celebrated 29 years together. Blows my mind. I'm not that old. Guess I am. And it's been great. And the Lord has blessed us. But I know not every marriage is that way. But as we give counsel, as we, as we come alongside people, we have to have the Lord Jesus and what he decides is righteous first and foremost in our mind, not what people want. I mean, think about what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He talks there about a wife who's married to a man who's not obeying the word of God. Presumably he's an unbeliever. So he's acting like an unbeliever. And the command Peter gives to that wife be a great wife to him. Try to win him with your wonderful deeds. Display for him the gospel at work in your heart. And maybe in God's grace, he will use that to bring repentance to this man. He doesn't say just because you're not getting your needs met, just because he's not making you happy, feel free to walk away. That's not the Christian way in anything. There's all kinds of things that make us unhappy, all kinds of needs that are not being met by others, all kinds of wants that we have that somebody else is not fulfilling. What is the biblical mandate? We love sacrificially. We say it's, it's not about you meeting my needs. It's not about me getting my wants met by somebody else. It's what does Jesus want from me, and he wants me to stay married be willing to suffer the wrongdoing. Why not rather be wronged? Now that statement's not mere, it's not in the context of marriage per se, but that's the attitude when a brother's trying to sue a brother. He says, why not rather be wronged? Would you ever counsel a young woman or not so young woman who's considering walk away? Why not rather be wronged and love Christ with all your heart and Trust the Lord to bring restoration here? He may not. God does not promise that in every case. How many relationships have you been in that are hard, they're broken, and God doesn't bring restoration? It happens. We are not in glory yet. We are not in that place where all sin is removed yet. 
And until then, there are going to be ruptured relationships in homes and marriages and families and churches all over the place. But as far as it is possible with you and with me, we are to live at peace. Jesus says, stay married. Trust the Lord to meet your needs. And we are rationalization machines, aren't we? Cognitive dissonance, if you don't know what that is, you need to look it up. We have our convictions, and then our experience doesn't match up with our convictions, and we start twisting around things and our actions and behaviors to fit our principles, even though they don't. It, it causes our brains to go all haywire, because I, I say this, I believe this, but I don't like that, so I'm going to act differently. We have to reconcile those somehow. Another important term is confirmation bias. You see what you want to see. If you want to see your spouse as mistreating you, you can find evidence. Right? Anybody ever done that? Of course. You can find reason in any relationship. I mean, people do this with God. He's not treating me the way I want to be treated. Therefore, I don't like him. He's doing me wrong. We can do that with God, we certainly can do that with our spouses. This is not easy. Solomon, who knew something about wives, had several things to say about marriages and about living with a woman that is hard to live with. And I'm sure the reverse is true for women living with men that are hard to live with. But what does King Jesus, the incarnation of righteousness, say to us? God brought man and woman together in marriage and said, what God has brought together, no man has the right to separate. That has to be our counsel because the world is doing everything it can to go against that. You've heard all the stats, 42% of marriages end in divorce, 60-some percentage of second marriages in divorce, 72% of third marriages in divorce. You've heard the stats that the divorce rate in the church is the same as the world. I don't believe that for a minute. I think the word church there is defined way too loosely. But that's still too much. We have to stand on the word of God here. Again, I know for some of you this is, this is painful because of what you've been through. But please hear me say, believe the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We believe that. We are all sinners, so this is not to heap shame on anybody. But we have to believe what is true, regardless of what we've done in the past. And it may be, if you have been divorced and remarried, it may be that as you're pondering this, you are convicted, you know, my divorce was displeasing to the Lord. What do you do with that? You confess it to the Lord, and you receive his forgiveness. And now in your current marriage, you become the best spouse you can possibly be. That's why Jesus died on the cross, because you committed that sin. But he rose again so you could be forgiven, and now he says, now please me with your marriage. Nobody here is going to look down upon you. The Lord doesn't look down upon you. But we can't let our own experience trump the word of God. And the world needs the church 
to preach truth, to live truth, and to say, no, this is how God designed marriage to be. It's just not ours to divide. We want to be oaks of righteousness. We are oaks of righteousness. We are designed to display the glory of the Lord. And our marriages are designed to do that, even hard, difficult, strained marriages. May Front Range Alliance Church be filled with the people who are devoted to these things. Let's pray. Lord, I can only imagine what's stirring in the hearts of some here today. Lord, would you, by your spirit and by your grace and your truth, meet each of us where we are. It's not about what I think, what I say, but what King Jesus says. May we all wrestle with these things, with the adultery of our hearts, with our view of divorce and remarriage. May we wrestle with them and not listen to the world, not listen to outsiders, not listen to people who are biased, but wrestle with your word and seek to live out what is pleasing to you. You're our king. You're our savior. You are righteousness incarnate. You've given us your instructions. May we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And Lord, for anyone who is convicted this morning of sin, Lord, that's a good thing. Bring them all the way that they would repent and receive forgiveness and restoration and live faithfully to your honor and glory. And may we be a light to the world in this. 